what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. This podcast is sponsored by Jackson Creative, a custom communication agency located in downtown Hickory, North Carolina, specializing in online content creation. To learn more, visit thejacksoncreative.com. Jackson Creative, we tell your story. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. My name is Alan Jackson. I am the co-director and co-founder of the Foot Candle Film Society and Foot Candle Film Festival. With me, as always, although not across the table, but across the virtual table, across is, the, <laughs> is uh, my other co-director, co-producer, uh, Chris Fry. Chris, how are you doing? You know, I'm doing good. I am quarantined in my little office. Feels good to talk to another human being besides somebody in my family. So that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, nice. that's nice. Yeah, it's uh, as as you could probably understand. I don't think we really needed a whole lot of background on this. Of course, we are recording in different locations. I am still in my office office. Chris is in a home office. We are observing the social distancing that uh, we we need to be doing right now. And also making the best use of technology, recording from a different home environments. So this will be a first for us. Well, no, I take it back. We actually did a recording, I remember, a few years ago where I was remote in a hotel room oh, yeah. recording uh, our show. So it's a little bit of a throwback. This isn't our first time doing a remote recording, but this one still feels a little more, a little more historic, a little more interesting. So we'll see how it goes for sure. It may be the first of at least a couple that are done this way. I know. I I was going to say we might need to keep fine-tuning this uh, this process as we go along. This is Foot Candle Films. This is our ongoing podcast show here on TheMesh.TV where we discuss films. We review some latest film releases. We talk about some movie news, and we also give recommendations of films we think you ought to check out at the end of the episode. Uh, Chris, I'll go ahead and kind of give a spoiler. The news section is going to be – uh, unique because there isn't a lot of really up-to-date news on films because everything is in a hiatus production status. But we will talk a little bit about that after we go through our two main reviews. Uh, we do have two films that we're going to be reviewing in today's show. Um, first up, we will have the latest uh, telling of the classic story, Emma, uh, starring this time with Anya Taylor-Joy. Then we'll be following up that with a review of a film called Swallow that uh, we're just going to wait and kind of talk about that when we get to that that description of that that film. But first off, let's go ahead and get into our first review again. It is the latest uh, film based on the Jane Austen novel. I know it's been remade before, but this is the 2020 version of the film Emma starring Anya Taylor-Joy. Dearly beloved friends, we gather here in this time of man's great innocence. Innocence? Innocence? No? (laughs) 
Emma. Emma. Um. Miss Woodhouse, Miss Woodhouse, such news. Emma, based on the novel by Jane Austen, uh, I know was remade or made into a film back in the 90s, I believe, starring Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, We have another version of it here in 2020. The story in general, it's 1800s England, and uh, Anna Taylor-Joy stars as Emma, a well-meaning but selfish young woman that meddles in the love lives of her friends. Chris... I came into this film already with a little maybe prejudice against it in that I have a really, what's that? It's a period piece. Yay. Yeah. I, I, uh, I have a very difficult time with period piece films that rely so heavily on so many characters, so many names, so many intricate uh, relationships and understanding different titles and locations of where people live. It's tough. It's a tough process to watch a film uh, of this type. So I was already going into this with a little bit of negative expectations, but I was actually happy uh, because I do think Anya Taylor-Joy is an interesting actress. And I was really excited to see her in a truly starring role because I don't think I've seen her in a role where she was truly front and center, the star of the film. I know in the witch, she was a supporting, she was a member of the family and probably the most prominent member of the family in that horror film. But I can't really say she was the ultimate star of the film. It was more of an ensemble piece. This one, it's pretty much her for the most part. So my question to you, Chris, is, yeah, I know you're very similar to me when it comes to period pieces. We both have a little bit more difficulty with these types of films. Did you find this to be a rewarding experience seeing this film, given the type of genre it is? And or uh, was it Anya Taylor-Joy? Did she help make or break this film uh, as the lead role that she played here in a very interesting character of Emma? So I have a little bit of a, I guess, a cheat on this film because I was, you know, I know I normally steer away from period pieces, but I guess something was in the water back in 1996 when Emma with Gwyneth Paltrow came out. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I was enamored with Gwyneth Paltrow because I remember there was a phase where it was like, you know, she was the it actress and she was in tons sure. of stuff. And, um, so I saw Emma and I remember being like, wow, I really like that. It was funny. It wasn't your typical stuffy period piece. So I remember being like, sure. oh, I like that. You know? um, and I'd, I'd forgotten about it. And then when I saw they were making this one, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that story. That, that could be different. Um, sure enough. I, I did have a good time with the film. Um, and what sets it apart from other period pieces that you and I have often said, where it's just not our thing is the fact that this is funny. Um, yeah. And now I don't know if I was able to pick up on some of the humor because I'd seen it before. So it was kind of like getting greatest hits of a Saturday night live skit. You're like, Oh yeah, I remember this. And I remember that, you know, because there's a lot of kind of the idea behind Shakespeare when he would write comedies and it would be a lot of, you know, misunderstandings and this person's trying to get this person to like him. It's a lot of like, you know, confusion and silly things that just happen to work out in just such a manner, you know, all contrivances basically. Mm -hmm. Um, But I knew that was going to happen. And so I kind of knew like, oh yeah, this has to happen. So this person gets mad and this person goes off and tries to, you know, woo this other person. Like I kind of knew how all that was going to work out. So 
it didn't bog it down for me. It was able to move along because of that. And I, I liked it. Um, <laughs> I'm sensing maybe your, your enjoyment was maybe a little less because it was kind of hard to keep up with what was happening. Um, yeah, I'd say my enjoyment was less mainly, and it probably has more to do with me and my, my ability to, to comprehend and process this, this type of story and plot. Um, I will, I did like the film. I think the film was visually a lot of fun to watch. I love some of the smaller performances in the film. A lot of the supporting characters, I think uh, some of the more unique, interesting characters were really well done. And I enjoyed, uh, line deliveries and I enjoyed a lot of uh, kind of a little bit more of those humorous moments that you talked about in the film. Sure. It's just, it was tough for me that first half of the film because uh, you know, it's just like a film of this genre. It's throwing in a lot of names, a lot of locations, a lot of names of houses and manors and lords and ladies. And uh, everybody looks the same. Everybody talks the same. So it's kind of really hard to kind of get a feel for what exactly is going on. Once I did figure it out, about halfway through, and I felt like I started to get a little bit of a handle of the plot. I did enjoy the film more. Um, now, that being said, Chris, let me just ask you. I mean, this is a remake of a previous version of the film, also obviously based on the original novel. Compared to the Gwyneth Paltrow version, what made this any different? Did this Was this any different of a film than that other version? Because I did look at this and said, you know, the things that set it apart for me from other period dramas of this type is – the vibrant use of colors and pastels and the music I thought was really good. And then I thought the, uh, the comedy, it was a, a funny story, but you said the Gwyneth Paltrow version was also funny. So was there anything else different about the films? I think um, the comedy was definitely there in the Gwyneth Paltrow. I think maybe some of the timing was maybe even better in this one, or maybe it seemed better because I was already familiar with the story. Um, but I will say something that you picked up on, that I definitely feel like makes it stand out from the other um, version of Emma is the production design and the costumes and the colors. Um, I felt like maybe the other Emma was more of your typical period piece where, yeah, they have, you know, big fluffy dresses, but um, my wife was the one who was, she was watching it with me and she said something like, I feel like this is a Wes Anderson movie. And I said, yep, I can, I can actually see that the way certain shots were framed and then the way they did colors and, you know, sometimes you were actually wondering, I wonder if that's actually true to the time. Would that carriage really be this like bright blue and yellow that makes it really jump out of the screen? Or is that something they just decided to do for color reasons? You know, and yeah, I, right. you know, I don't know, but I can totally see where you're coming from with the whole, you know, it's a lazy shorthand when people just say, oh, it looks like a Wes Anderson aesthetic. But in this sense, like, that's just they really did describe it. Um, and I really, that kind of helped you know, keep it from being the lull you to sleep period piece. That's just like, Oh, this is a pretty house or, Oh, this mm-hmm. is people wearing costumes. It, you know, it kind of jumped out more to me. Um, I will say the one thing that was distracting and there again, it's probably period accurate, but um, Taylor joy, I think she was the one who did it the most, but she would have these like curls. that were like these really tight poodle curls that were part of her hairstyle annoyed the crap out of me <laughs> like because even i think like the rest of her hair was probably not extension and it probably was natural but just like those little really tight little like ringlet curls they were so supernaturally like i don't know weird they looked like something you would stick on a gift at christmas time like like a little ribbon curl like it looked really weird <laughs> all right chris i honestly that that note 
about the hairstyles nowhere in my notes. So that's a completely <laughs> unique take you've got on the movie. Yeah. By yourself. Really like bothered me several times in the film. Um, the gentleman, and again, you know, probably period accurate, or maybe it's just something they decided to emphasize because it would heighten the fact that all these people were very proper gentlemen or something. Mm-hmm. Their collars were so high collars on them. Like I could just feel it like surrounding my neck and I hate wow. eyes anyway. And it like bothers me. It makes me feel like claustrophobic, like somebody's choking me. And yeah, another random thing, the collars in this film were driving me crazy. So that's where our review has now progressed into is now we're, we're critiquing the hairstyling and the costuming yeah. uh, of, of these, these films. Wow. Yeah. I mean, okay. Well, kind of strange, but right, go for it, man. Hey, whatever, whatever works or doesn't work for you in a film, that's all you. Well, um, it's just, just weird. I mean, kind of dialing it back to the, the normal things we talk about. You mentioned some of the supporting performances. Yeah. Uh, Bill Nighy, he's in a lot oh, yeah. of films. He's, People would probably know him from his role as uh, Davy Jones in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. But um, he's Emma's father, Mr. Woodhouse. And he doesn't have a lot of screen time. And the screen time that he does have, he's being Bill Nye. I mean, he's got this like, you know, kind of quirk to him, but it, it works. And it was fun to see him chewing scenery. At least I've- oh, I, I loved his performances. I Well, and at first I thought it was a little, they were trying to make, just make him a little too quirky. But then when you start to realize that his whole thing is not only is he uh, very paranoid about, you know, sick and sickness and illness. And then there's paranoid about weather. There's parent. It's just always on edge about things. And once you start to get the sense of who he was, he was a scene stealer every time he came back on the screen. So I did enjoy him. Um, there were some other characters I really liked in the film too. Um, I'm having a hard time looking up the actual actor's name, but he played the minister, I guess. Uh, um, what, I'm sorry, what was that again? His name was Josh O'Connor and he played the okay. Mr. Elton. Yeah. Yes. He was a lot of fun to watch as well. So, and then his soon to be wife also in the film, she was very fun. So again, a lot of great supporting characters. I'll be honest, Anya Taylor joy. She was fine. I mean, I, I thought she was okay, fine. but I actually think the other actors kind of got to step around her and kind of step up over her a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I was more impressed with all the supporting actors than I was her own performance, which hmm. surprised me a little bit, but, um, Again, I, for the kind of film it is, I had a good time with it. I think it is fun. I think people going into this expecting it to be a little stuffier are going to be happy to see that it does have a really good sense of humor and it is fun. Uh, yes, it's a period romance. It's got some dram- dramatic elements to it. But overall, it does have a lot of great humor. And uh, I, I, I did have a generally good time with it. I was, you know, it was fun for me to see her Anya Taylor-Joy in this because, you know, I'd seen her in The Witch, seen her in Split, another independent movie that came out last year, which was Thoroughbreds. And in all three of the, I mean, I guess Witch is a little different because it's a period piece, but Split and Thoroughbreds, it's like she plays this angsty, gothy, you know, type role. So to see her in this, which is this effervescent, you know, I don't know, just completely different than her period piece role in The Witch. It's like a totally different type of character. And it was really fun to see her kind of stretch and play such a juicy role in a period piece because she really did work for me. Um, But, you know, I 
I can see there's so much going on with the other characters that maybe it didn't jump out for you, but she, her performance, you know, worked for me. And um, okay. somebody else, the Johnny Flynn, which I'm not really familiar with him, he played George Knightley, which is basically the foil for Emma and all her little plants. Mm-hmm. He kind of sabotages some of them. He's been around a, a while, but this was his first major role that I'd seen him in, and I thought he was. I thought he was pretty good. Yeah, I was actually going to mention him as well. I was not familiar with him as an actor, but I thought he was really good. He had some really great uh, screen presence and just, uh, again, I think it was really well cast. I think they had a, a really great assortment of people. And again, Anya Taylor-Joy, I thought, did a serviceable job in the lead role. I just, I felt like she was just overshadowed. I think, I just felt like at times she was trying to force the humor or force the awkwardness of situations where everybody else seemed to just be very, very flowing with it, where she seemed to be a little more, a little more pushing herself to meet everybody else. But again, I think overall the whole ensemble worked really well. And again, as you mentioned, the look of the film, I did feel like the look of the film was really interesting. Probably one of the key reasons that kept me engaged longer, even as I was struggling in that first half is just the fact that the look of it was just, really sharp and inviting, just bright and vibrant. And like you said, you mentioned Wes Anderson. Yeah. It's probably if Wes Anderson were to adapt a Jane Austen novel, it would be relatively close to this kind of style and look, I think. Um, So overall, yeah, I had a good time with the film. I do think it's worth checking out. I will say. I think um, something that, you know, stands out to me always in a film is, you know, you can just enjoy it, but if there's a scene that you really can, pick out and separate that was really your favorite that kind of sets it apart from maybe your standard. It was okay. So, you know, instead of giving it the mm-hmm. star, it was okay. What really jumps out to me, and this would set it apart from the Emma from 1996, at least in my mind, because I did not remember this specific part from that movie. And if it had been that impactful from 96, you would think I'd still remember it. Um, without giving too much away, I'll just say that the scene that really kind of jumped out at me and I was like, wow, that was amazing. And the kind of the fallout from it. Favorite scene from the film, kind of the cornerstone, Emma has a faux pas during a picnic um, with some Oh, right. Yeah. And how she plays it and then the kind of the fallout of everything was just like, it was because it could be read as funny in one sense, which there again, I'll you know resort to saying my wife, my wife was like, Oh snap like that. And then it's like, Oh, wait a second. What, what mm-hmm. from what I just said, because <laughs> you know? Emma's one that can come up with quick one liners, which she often does to Mr. Knightley and kind of throw things back in his face. And it kind of bites her in the butt. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, so that one scene, I was like, wow, that was really impactful. And it actually, you know, kind of makes me think, you know, today's day and age, internet and stuff, people are kind of throwing off comments or saying things without really taking into heart what it could mean to the other person. And so I really, really like that scene. And it, it it's like vivid. I can see it right now in my head without having to read Yeah, yeah, I agree. It was a really good scene. And actually, I will say, even though I was a little more lukewarm on Taylor Joy's performance, I thought the scene following that, where she actually tried to make some amends, oh, yeah. the scenes afterwards, she was really good. I thought that was a really well-acted scene. So I actually think she was probably better in the more serious, dramatic moments than I did feeling like in the more lighter, quirkier, funnier moments. So, um, 
Did you have any issues with the film? I mean, I kind of mentioned a couple of things that kind of hung up for me, but it sounds like you were, you were pretty positive on it. Yeah, no, I didn't really have any issues. Um, for me, it was, you know, I did watch this at home, something we haven't actually mentioned yet. This film did come out in the theater, but then the distribution companies with the whole quarantine and, you know, the virus thing going around, they went ahead and released it VOD and just charged, you know, $20 for it. You know, so you weren't buying it, you were just renting it. And um, I watched it at home and I think the film actually probably would have done maybe a lot better in a theater. It probably would have even had a better impact on me. Still had a good one, but it was just, it was a nice escape. You know, <laughs> I think that's why mm-hmm. it really was just a good escape. And I wonder if um, there would have been more fanfare around it actually, if little women, which was an adaptation of a kind of a period novel had just come out last year and it, you know, got a lot of, you know, a claim for the actresses in there. And in a way, I feel like, I mean, that's more of a drama than a comedy, but I feel like another period piece and a retelling of a story, because that Little Women's been done a, done a bunch of times before, that maybe that kind of made some of the shine of Emma kind of fall away. Whereas if there hadn't been just Little Women last year, maybe there would have been more buzz around Emma. Well, I mean, in all honesty, I think the biggest the biggest issue with this is the fact that it had only been out a week <laughs> when a lot of theaters started shutting down. And right. uh, that's to me, the biggest thing that kind of impacted this. Um, I, I, I wish, cause I agree with you. I think this is a film that probably would play really well with audiences mm-hmm. in a group setting. So it's a shame that it's not able to do that. Um, it's a, I wish it had been a film that could have been released once all of this uh, social distancing and the theater closures kind of got resolved and hopefully theaters opening back up like they had, it'd be a good film for people to kind of get together and watch and at least have a little bit more of a good time, a lighter time with watching after everything that people have been going through for the last several weeks. So, so with that, we're going to both say Emma good. We liked it. Uh, Chris, you even seem a little more positive than me. I was generally happy with it and, and pleased. I did say that my issue was I felt like it, was hard to get into, hard to understand the story. You had a little bit of a uh, of an advantage there, already having been familiar with the story before. I did feel like it was tough to get into, tough to really follow. But by about halfway through, once things started to click into place a little more, I did find it to be a very enjoyable experience. So, right. All right. Well, that is the movie Emma. Now we're going to go ahead and move on to our second review, which is a film titled Swallow. you happy. I'm the happiest man in the whole world. I feel so lucky. You're not mad at me? Mom, we're pregnant. About what? I just want to make sure I'm not doing anything wrong. You couldn't do anything wrong, even if you tried. So what did you do for money before you met my son? Retail, mostly. A lucky break. I'm just real grateful. Fake it till you make it. Are you happy? Or are you pretending?
How does it make you feel when you swallow something? I just like the textures in my mouth. Textures in my mouth. It made me feel in control. In control. Uh, I'm right here. I just wanted to make you happy. You get back here with my kid! I did something unexpected today. In Swallow, actress Haley Bennett plays Hunter, a newly pregnant housewife who finds herself increasingly compelled to consume dangerous objects. As her husband and his family tighten their control over her life, she must confront the dark secret behind her new obsession. This was my first look at the work of writer-director Carlo Mirabella Davis and the first major role I'd seen Haley Bennett in. She had smaller roles in the 2016 Magnificent Seven remake and on the, in the film The Girl on the Train. Alan, I'm guessing likewise, this was your first chance to see their handiwork. What did you make of their efforts, both the director and Miss Haley Bennett? Um, so, yes, first experience with either of them, because I hadn't seen any of the films you mentioned that she had been in and not familiar with his other fork. Um, this was interesting. I I liked it. Okay. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't perfect. I think there's some things I could have seen that could really have expanded on what they were trying to do, but I think overall I understood what the film was really trying to communicate. And I will say, I thought the lead performance, Haley Bennett was really good. Um, the film has enough of a, in a odd way, a, a Hitchcock quality to it. Oh. Even in some of the music, I think the music was really, really strong in the film, both a use of a very orchestral score at times that did heighten a lot of tension for you in moments, but then it also brought in a lot of more contemporary music and kind of that mix of it was really interesting. And I thought all the performances were really strong too. I was uh, impressed to see <laughs> starring as uh, her husband's father, her father-in-law, uh, who's the guy that played Sledgehammer on, on the old TV show, right? Yeah. Um, that was kind of an interesting blast from the past I had not seen, but you know, it, it's a story and it's a film that you can read a lot into. There's a lot of, um, I think, hidden meanings or not hidden meanings, but maybe very uh, meanings regarding feminism, regarding uh, men controlling women's choices and even their physical bodies with, you know, even look at things like abortion and other things that, you know, we deal with in society and have a lot of the uh, different viewpoints on throughout the world. I think it's an interesting film. I think they did a really good job. I kind of felt like I wanted more from it, especially mm -hmm. but as we got towards the end, but I understood the reason they cut it the way they did. And I'm fine with the way it did end, but it was something where I was kind of getting really enthralled with this character and was, was kind of looking forward to seeing more, more of the story. Uh, it takes a couple of interesting terms that I thought did not expect it to go into. Uh, late in the film, some encounters that she has or rekindling of some past relationships she has that I thought were also some really impressive scenes as well. So I I, I generally really like the film. Um, 
got a few misgivings, but I want to kind of hear your thoughts first. So what, what did you think of it? Well, um, you know, this was my first exposure to, like I said, that both the director and the actress, really. And from the early scenes of the film, I was taken with how assured the acting, the direction, the cinematography, the production design, the lighting, the sound design, everything just seemed to be really, like to me, it was like watching a film from a master of suspense. This, this was like their 10th film. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> like you mentioned, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, I'd throw in there De Palma or David Fender. You know, it's just like, they just have everything kind of really dialed in. And um, that's what it was like for me. And come to find out, I think this guy has only directed like maybe two films and one which which was more of like a documentary called The um, Swell Season that was about the people that were in the movie once or something. So, you know, this is very accomplished for me. I feel like it's very accomplished to be such a early work, apparently, from this guy. So, um, yeah, really surprised about it. And right away, like you said, you were complimenting Haley Bennett. Yes, she, as the central character, just her facial expressions and her body language and, you know, kind of how I sit around, you know, the family, her husband's family is very controlling and the husband's very controlling. And you just see her put on this mask whenever she's at like a public party or something. And, you know, she smiles and she'll try to, but you can just tell it is such a strain and such a, you know, you can tell she's not happy, you know, <laughs> but you know, she even, even just in front of her husband, it's a, it's a different nuanced type of mask she's putting on but she's still trying to please and trying to make him happy because she, she does love him. And you know, just, there's a lot going on there with, uh, with acting, but it, it all, it all worked for me. Um, yeah. you mentioned there's some twists and some turns in the film. Um, and I kind of, you know, connecting to Emma, um, I say, you know, with every film, there's a scene that if I can nail down like a scene that's going to stick with me forever, you know, kind of points out as, elevates it a little bit above just being okay. You can tell I already liked the movie. But what, I think I know the film. I think I know the scene, but go ahead. I want to see if I'm right. I'm sure you did. You actually already mentioned it. I'll just, it's a, without giving anything away, it's a birthday party confrontation yeah. scene. Oh yeah. And I, you've never, and just the things that are said, the acting from both characters, the person she's confronting and from her, just, I mean, just blew me away. Yeah, it was and great. I, I admit, after that, and this is towards the end of the film, after that scene, it just kind of, you know, kind of concludes. And I admit you could feel a little like, oh, but I think it's so hard to follow up that scene. No, it's true. And it's so Well, that scene, and that scene in retrospect kind of makes you reevaluate a lot of the part earlier part of the movie. Because mm-hmm. um, there for the longest time, you, you find yourself really not knowing if you understand all the quite the motivations of the lead character this is a film that as you build and as you continue on, you start to get a much more full fit, full picture of what she's wrestling with, what's going on with her. It could be seen as a very surface. Oh, she's just an abused uh, wife and, and all this, but it's, you find there's a lot more than just that. There's a lot deeper uh, history with her. And uh, that scene in the birthday party really kind of brings it all to a head. I agree. That's a great scene. There's, in that scene, you know, she mentions earlier in the film when she's at a, I can never keep them straight, psychologist, psychologist. I, I don't know which, which ist this person is, but she's visiting one of them. And she kind of comes down to saying, or there's kind of a point made about control. 
And she, you know, why do you think you're doing this swallowing of objects? Which we, we'll get to that part in a minute. Yeah, we do need to talk about that. Yeah. But, um, she said, you know, is she said, do you think it's something to do with control? And I think that is, you know, it felt like she was in control of what she was doing because she was yeah. making the decision to do this. Um, in the pivotal scene, without giving anything away, she asks a very pointed question to the person that's confronting her or that she's confronting. And that person gives her a very balanced answer, but it kind of sets her free in a way that you weren't expecting. Just this like really, I don't know, really, really good scene. Won't say any more to spoil it. Yeah. I just, that was just really amazing. Well, let's talk about the actual title of the film, Swallow, because I'll, I'll here again, I think this is important why we have reviews like this and we kind of help people understand these films because you were the one who suggested this film as something we, we, we watch. And I remember looking at the poster, reading the description and watching the trailer and saying, oh boy, I don't know how I'm going to do with this because right. it is a film about, you know, the premise is she swallows things and she just finds herself kind of compelled to do this. And you do find out and understand over time why and what the end result is. I will go ahead and say for anybody who feels like maybe they're a little turned off by that premise or wants to stay away, it was not as overbearing or as troubling as I expected it to be. And actually I found myself so much more involved with her emotionally right. to even really focus too much on the physicality of what she was doing. Yes, it's tough to watch. Yes, there are some scenes that are very grueling, but I never felt like it got overly graphic or overly disturbing for that disturbing sake. It was really a, yes, you were meant to feel what she was feeling as close as possible. And there were some scenes that did that. Um, so I was actually kind of happy to see that it was not, <laughs> this wasn't anything bordering on some sort of torture porn type of thing where you're just, it's a grueling experience to watch. I did feel like that they handled it very tastefully. Sure. Tastefully. I probably shouldn't have used that word tastefully, but <laughs> you get the idea. Um, but uh, it, again, but it also was still very difficult to watch those scenes and intentionally so. Well, the, yeah, when I saw the, the summary of this movie and I watched the trailer, I was kind of like, huh, I wonder, you know, with a lot, you and I typically don't watch horror movies. That's just, that's right. just our thing. Um, we'll watch suspense movies or things like that. But a lot of times if movies come out like The Witch, and people are saying, okay, it's a horror movie, but it's really like, it's kind of your art house horror movie. And that's kind of what this is, is, you know, it kind of plays with your mind. It's psychological. But when it comes down to <laughs> swallowing thumbtacks and things like that, it's done. It sounds weird to say, but it's done as artfully as it can be. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. The only scenes that physically made me uncomfortable and just, you know, but it, I, again, I'm, I understand why they did it. Is there are some medical scenes yes. traversing down? Uh, I don't know, traversing down tracheas and yeah. pipes. And all, it was a little much, but again, it, it had a purpose in the film. It's just those are the only scenes where I found myself really recalling, like, "Whoa, okay, yeah. this is uh, this is pretty intense." But um. Overall, I was impressed with the film. Again, you know, if it had been a, a, a filmmaker who had been doing films for 20 years and I saw this, I, I that I, and doing really high quality films, I would have said, eh, it was a good film. It was fine. The fact that this seems to be like, like you said, his second feature film and the first one I'd heard of, it's really good. So uh, I think this is definitely a director. I'm kind of curious to see what else they want to do because they certainly have a style to their, their filmmaking. And, uh, I was always engrossed in the film, even if 
Um, not every moment worked for me as well. It was still very engrossing and, and inviting film. Um, two, so I, I had a good time with it. Two touchstones that kind of I thought were interesting. One, basically, well, you know, two two touchstones. One is um, Parasite from last year. You know, that had a lot to do, a lot going on in that film, but a lot of it was centered around a very fancy house and yeah. the architecture of the house and also with yeah. glass. I mean, this film, you know, the... <laughs> Hunter is living in a really cool house that her and her husband just got. Um, yeah. Really cool house, the lines of it. And then there's, of course, class struggle. But a more recent film that we actually just recently discussed as well that I think would make an interesting pairing with this film is The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss. Oh, yeah. I did see a lot of comparisons there. Yeah. Both films have two women in troubled marriages with controlling husbands um so and you know, to have different outcomes <laughs> but yeah um, they both took different routes but you know that's that's good um but that would make it no i yeah. no I, I agree completely you know the house you're right the house did definitely play a part well just because i think you know we're also supposed to understand early on this was a little bit of her 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 uh prison you know a little bit of her isolation i mean we didn't really see her interact with anybody else other than her husband, her husband's friends, and her husband's parents. Mm-hmm. And I think that was very intentional, and that kind of led to part of the story as well. So, yeah. Yeah, Swallow, I was I was generally impressed with. I thought it was really good, and uh, I'm more curious now to see what some of the director and the lead actress, what they're going to be doing now, because I did like both the performance and the direction of the film. Um, I, I it left me wanting more, but I get, I understand that was intentional to some degree. I will say the closing shot with the credit scrolling, uh, it's just inside a women's bathroom. Oh, it's just a static shot that went on for almost the entire time of credits was also, I think a nice touch. It just, uh, you know, again, we're talking about a film that has to do with women and women be able to make their own choices and not being dominated and controlled by men. And we spend basically most of the credits, just watching women go in and out of a women's restroom, only women. Um, I get what they're trying to communicate here. And I understood what the purpose of the film was. Uh, I was happy that it was not just a torturous experience. Um, it was actually something a lot more meaningful, and a lot deeper than I expected. So there's just, a, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of art going on, whether it's the cinematography or just the way they chose to tell the story and not make it a typical thriller or a typical horror film. Yeah, I, I agree, and I can't wait to see what they do next. With the I agree completely. All right. Well, that is our two reviews for this episode. So, again, the, the 2020 version of Emma, and then we also discussed the latest film, Swallow. And it was curious, too. I forgot to point this out with Emma, jumping back an entire movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, sure. While we're recapping it, go for it. Why not? Um, something that was interesting, when you see Emma listed on the internet, it's Emma, period. <laughs> It's not just the word Emma. Um, it's always Emma, period. And they actually carry – it's like kind of they're putting their stamp on the story of Emma by not just doing Emma, but it's like Emma, period. And then on the titles that are in the actual movie, you know, it kind of sets itself up with the different seasons. So you follow her through spring, summer, you know, these sort of things. They'll do like spring, period, winter, period. Like they kind of – it's a little motif that they kind of set up in that. I see. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't even pay attention to that, but I figured it was just a way of making sure when people are searching for the name of the movie, it did not pull up the other Emma. It was very separate from it, but could be a little bit of both. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, could be. 
All right. Well, we're, since we're done with our reviews, we're going to go ahead and take a quick little break for a, mess, uh, a commercial message. When we come back, we will be hitting our movie news, which includes also our trailer tapas, where we talk about some movie trailers of films coming up soon. And then we'll also end the show with our recommendations of films we think are worth checking out. So you're listening to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV, and we'll be right back. Hey, this is Moose from Street Circle Drive. That's the Hickory, North Carolina-centric podcast here on The Mesh. Be sure to check out our show and all the others at themesh.tv. Chris, let's talk about the first trailer we've got, and we're going to play the whole trailer. Uh, Chris, you and I may chime in a little bit while it's playing. Otherwise, we'll just kind of recap it and talk about it here at the end. The first trailer is the one for the Beastie Boys, uh, the Beastie Boys story which is going to be a documentary that's so going to be premiering on Apple TV here in the next few weeks. Ready? Yeah. Now here's a little story that I got to tell about three bad brothers that you know so well. It started way back in history with that rock. MCA and me. My D. No, I love the theater, no matter what, where this is uh, this is going to be taking place. In the early 80s, everyone in our scene was in the band. We wanted to be rappers so bad, but we were mediocre at best. Just don't stop. Most rappers hold their rhymes in little pieces of paper, right? We went from being famous in a 14-block radius to being on tour with Madonna and Rick Rubin. The shows kept getting bigger and bigger. We morphed from making fun of party bros to actually becoming those dudes. We were burning out. I just didn't even recognize the person that I had become at that point. Yo, hold up. It's not over yet. Go. There's not that many times in your life when you realize you're in a new chapter. The Beastie Boys are back after a six-year absence. We changed how we wanted to be as people and friends. We got inspired, and while experimenting, we found our voice. <laughs> really? High five? Yeah. Yeah, it's coming back, Adam. It's coming back. Spike Jones, that's why I'm in. Adam Yao. Yeah, no, that's going to make it interesting. I like that. The one that not only gets themselves going and doing great things... But says we should all do this. Yauk was that type of friend. Yauk, Mike, and I have spent more time with each other than with our own families. It's not like all of it was easy or highlight filled, but who gets to work every day with their two best friends? kind of mentioned there a little bit, Alan threw in, you know, this is kind of unique in the, the documentary style because it's an audio podcast, so people didn't visually see what was happening. But Alan commented the fact that there was a theater involved. And mm-hmm. I commented that uh, Spike Jones is the reason I'm in on this because his name came up as being involved. 
So basically what it appears they've done is this documentary looks like it was actually kind of a live performance that the Beastie Boys, the two surviving members of it, put on and Spike Jones kind of directed it. And there's a video screen behind them that they're showing footage sometimes. And it's like they're basically doing a live stand-up kind of event where they're talking about their history and showing clips and kind of doing commentary while all this is happening. And I think all that sounds awesome. And what makes it kind of takes it to another level for me is the fact that Spike Jones is the person who is going to be doing this. And he's the one who did the sabotage video, the intergalactic video, a lot of the videos that are funny that the Beastie Boys did. Spike Jones was responsible for those. So the fact that he's the one doing this, you know, documentary Beastie Boys story thing, I think, you know, he, he's also the kind of person who he did her and he did some other films that were very innovative when he's making just a regular film film. So he hasn't had a piece of work in a while. So I'm interested to see that this is what he chose to do. How about you, Alan? No, no, I'm I'm absolutely in. I love music documentaries. I love anything uh, giving the history of any type of genre of music doesn't matter to me. And, and the fact that I, I generally like Spike Jones's work. So I'm excited about that as well. I, I'm a little, the only, only hesitation I've got in the trailer, the trailer is a great trailer for it is you know, I always worry about music documentaries when the people that are being documented about the actual musicians are kind of controlling the content. So I am a little, do I wish that maybe we had a full true documentary about the BC boys and maybe this will be, I don't know. Again, I'm, I'm basing everything off the trailer or whether it's going to be more of their viewpoint of their own history, which may or may not be as uh, authentic as you'd like for it to be. But Again, that's more of a content question. I think from a filmmaking standpoint, I'm all in. I'm looking forward to it. I just, I hope they're willing to be, you know, uh, like any good music documentary that's warts and all uh, and, and not feel like it's got to be too glossed over or too much of a, a Beastie Boy love fest. But again, I trust the people behind it. I trust the Beastie Boys themselves as creators. So it's a very, very small concern I've got. So, well, I mean, I, I see that because, you know, like you say, they're so heavily involved, obviously, that it's hard to think that it won't just be putting themselves up on a pedestal. What makes me feel a little better about it is the fact, and they acknowledge this in the trailer, we became people that we didn't really want to be. And True. Changed. And I remember I saw the Beastie Boys after that change had happened. I saw them at a Lollapalooza on the ill communication tour and, you know, they had changed. I mean, they were still dynamic on stage and everything, but just their tone. And, you know, they kind of, in a way, apologize for some of the early lyrics in their songs that were very misogynistic and mm-hmm. you know, down, you know, talk down to women. They kind of, they acknowledged a lot of that. And so I'd like to think that they'll have that same sense of honesty so that they won't be, you know, putting themselves too much on a pedestal or whatever, but uh, we'll, we'll see. And they kind of joke about, you know, we turned a corner, give me a high five. And the guy's like, what is that? Is that where we're at? So hopefully, you know, there'll, there'll be some of that honesty in there. I'm hoping. Yeah. I hope so as well. So that, that's really my only, only real concern, but otherwise I think, you know, it looks like it's going to be kind of interesting. Uh, so I'm all in and it being an Apple TV movie. I mean, we haven't really talked about our Apple TV plus uh, free film for people who have that subscription. Uh, it's the first time I can remember a movie that I'm looking forward to premiering on that service. So we'll see how that holds up. It's kind of a, one of their more premier films they're going to be showcasing. 
All right. Well, let's go to the other end of the spectrum, Chris. We're going to talk about a film and show the preview for it. And again, I don't know if this this trailer, Chris, is uh, family friendly or not. I don't think the one I've got is. So we may be doing some bleeping or cutting out of it. I'm not sure. But anyway, this is for a Netflix film coming out. It is a comedy called Coffee and Kareem starring Ed Helms and also Taraji P. Henson. Uh, I have not seen this yet. So let's all watch it together. What do you say? You have the right to remain silent! Aren't you trained for shit like this? Let's do this! What the? Kareem needs to go by a friend's house after school. And he asked that you pick him up. When my mom dated this one guy, we became BFFs. You were BFFs with a grown-ass man? There's literally documentaries on Netflix about why that's so sick and- Hey, Stan, that you've been talking about to kill! Oh, shit! Hey, who's back there? Kareem, run! Go! Go! Get it! Go, go, go! It's the police! Helms, Teresa P. Henson. It looks like it could be fun. I I just always worry about tra- trailers for comedies like this if they just cram in the the funniest parts in the in the in the trailer. I like the premise. The premise seems to be a situation where a, a man and woman dating. The 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 man is I guess like a security guard or something like that, and she <laughs> tries to bring him in to act like a police officer for her son to try to scare him straight. That type of thing. So, and they have some sort of bond uh, friendship going on after that. Um, yeah, it looks like it could be fun. Again, I just have no idea. Comedies are so tough on trailers to know. See, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Normally, you know, you and I, I, we used to steer away from trailers. Like I wouldn't even watch them. And then I was like, well, you know, start being part of our show, movies that people may not be aware of. In this instance, the two we've done this episode, it's good because it'll be things people can watch at their house and they don't have yeah. to go out to the theater. You know, can't go out to the theater. Um, Coffee and Kareem, it's coming straight to Netflix. And you know what? It doesn't cost me any money because I have Netflix anyway. Um, based on that, tra- and there's so much stuff that comes out on Netflix. It's yeah. fun, you know, like, what do I, I, I thought this looked funny. Um, and, it, you know, granted, the trailer, I laughed a lot in the trailer, but is that the entire movie and the stuff, the other, you know, hour and 28 minutes that's not in that two-minute trailer? Is it going to be funny at all? Maybe not. But just based on that trailer, Netflix, you win. I will, I will watch Coffee and Cream because it looks like it could, it could be pretty, pretty funny. I mean, yeah. Ed Helms is capable of, you know, being funny. He was in Cedar Rapids. He was in The Office, and so I, I think he can, I think he can pull it off. Oh, I think, I think Ed, Ed Helms can be very funny. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I think Taraji P Henson is very talented. So I think it could be a fun chemistry to see the two of them together. Um, it's just you know it's a it's a comedy trailer, but you're right. Would I go out and pay ten dollars or eleven dollars to go see this? Not until I heard other reviews to know that it's like actually a really good high high quality comedy. Sure. Will I sit at home on my couch, which we're all pretty much doing these days, <laughs> and pull it up on Netflix and spend an hour and a half watching it? Sure, why not? We'll see what happens. But you know, so. and the thing is, you get. 15 minutes in, you're like, okay, I've already seen all the funny scenes and nothing mm-hmm. funny is happening. Then you bail. No harm. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
It is true. It is true. All right. So Coffee and Kareem coming to Netflix. What was the date on that? Do you remember when it said? Uh, I don't remember. No. I don't either. Uh, Soon. Coming soon to Netflix. We'll leave it at that. I think it's definitely, if it's not late March, then it's April. I think it's one of the two. It's it's in the next few weeks. All right. Good. So as we alluded to, let's just kind of move on to kind of some other just more general news before we do our recommendations, Chris. Uh, yeah, I think it's just, again, we, we talked about this at the last episode. Two weeks ago, we recorded. That's when things were starting to kind of ramp up a little bit with this whole, obviously, the the COVID-19 virus going on and starting to see a lot of the entertainment industry starting to shut down. We were seeing some theaters get a little more restrictive at that time. We were hearing about some productions being put on hold and maybe some films now going to be released online instead of going to the theater. But here we are two weeks later. And yeah, it's been a complete shutdown. I mean, we are looking at movie theaters across the country now closed. Um, We are seeing a lot of high profile films that would have been going to theaters popping up online for $20 or rental for a 48 hour period. Um, Trying to see how the ones that had been out only a couple of weeks in advance of the closures also going online. We've had uh, Pixar's Onward is now online after just being in theaters one or two weeks beforehand. Emma, we mentioned, was now online to, to, to view. Several other movies have kind of moved to that status as well. So not only if we experience this whole situation where films are not being released in theaters and maybe opting to go online, or we've seen films that were close to being released now getting pushed off to a later release date. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984, the Wonder Woman sequel, was supposed to be coming out, I think, in early May, and they've already said they've moved that to, I believe, August at this point. So they've already just said, look, we're moving it just to play it safe. But I, I want to kind of mention the fact that, you know, we're still predicting that there's going to be a big shortage of films months down the road or even in the next year because a lot of films that were early or close to ending production have now stopped production. Right. So obviously if you stop production – you run into a lot of different issues about whether or not you when you can pick that production back up. Production stopped on films about two weeks ago uh, from where we're recording this. Right now, all, all of them are saying when quoted that they don't anticipate being able to start back production at least until mid-May, if not much later, depending on how things go in the rest of our, our world. Um, the biggest challenge is that they just can't get productions together when there's bands out there saying that you know groups of 10 or, or more can't get together, obviously that limits productions considerably. Sure. And then you got the fact that a lot of actors and talents and directors have already signed on for other projects following these projects. So then is there just a big ripple effect where everything gets moved back or are some productions going to have to completely shut down because they've lost a lot of their talent? Some really interesting times. And I'm really curious to see what it's going to do uh, for the film business in the next year. Um, I want to just mention a few films that I know are high profile films, Chris, that we know right off the bat, there's going to be a major delay in when these films come out. Um, and I also want to list this because some of these films I wasn't even aware are being made. So I think it's just kind of interesting to know that these are even being considered. Did you know there's a fourth matrix that the, uh, Wachowski sisters are working on? And they had started because I saw a still that has, uh, Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss on a motorcycle or something. I get yeah. I'm like South America somewhere. 
And somebody posted a still of that and said, like, it's happening. So I was aware that they were working on it. So. Working on a Matrix 4, and it's the original creators, and uh, that one's on hold. So obviously they had to stop production work on that. Sure. Uh, the, the Marvel film that's supposed to be coming after the Eternals. Okay, so Marvel has Black Widow that has now been pushed back. It's not going to be released next month like they were saying. It's done. It's just they're pushing it. Yeah, it's done. It's ready for release, but they've pushed it back sure. to get a better opening weekend. And then we've got the Eternals that are supposed to be coming out, I think, this fall, and maybe. also done as well. My understanding is done. It may just be visual effects work uh, or other post-production work, which I, my understanding is a lot of people can still get that work done because that doesn't require groups altogether. Um, so they may still be finishing up work on that. But the film that's supposed to be after that, which is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, did stop production. So we don't know what's going to impact the schedule on that at all. I read an interesting commentary from someone, I forget who it was offhand, but just kind of to kind of summarize what they were saying is that Marvel is probably going to suffer the most from this whole situation. Really? Not only because of their release schedule, they put out two, two to three movies a year. Sure. And then they've got these other Apple or not Apple, but the Disney plus shows that are going to be complimenting that. The problem with Marvel is that everything is in a sequential storytelling. Mm-hmm. So things feed off of one another. So it's not just a matter of saying, we're going to take this one movie and move it back a year. If you move one element, the way they've always done their work, you kind of have to move everything back. So that's kind of the big challenge. I think they're looking at there with, with their films. Um, They're working on another Jurassic world. Did you know this? (laughs) Uh, Jurassic world domination. Now are they, who are they having directed? Do they know that? Um, Who's the fellow who did the first Jurassic world? It was Colin Trevorrow, wasn't it? Yeah, I think he's back doing this one. Okay. They went with uh, Boyana for the second one, uh, Fallen Kingdom. But I think they've gone back to Trevorrow for this for, uh, the, for this one. Okay. That's now completely on hold. Uh, Uncharted, which is a, uh adaptation of a video game. Oh, yeah. Very much an Indiana Jones kind of swashbuckler story uh, a little more modern day than than uh, indiana jones was but based on a very popular film uh, video game franchise that's now on hold uh peter pan and wendy is a disney live action their version of peter pan being told again okay. uh, which is very much the disney way these days yes uh mission impossible they're filming both seven and eight back to back and with the same director that did the last couple ones. Okay. Um, I'm personally really excited about those and kind of disappointed to see that they're pushing them back. Is it just Tom Cruise fighting the coronavirus? Is that what Yes, it is? it's going to be Tom Cruise taking down the coronavirus. Like he wins. Right. He has to win. Of course. Um, Nothing. The, bat- the, the Batman, we talked about the Batman and kind of our, our thoughts and early impressions on that. It is now on hold. So don't know when that's going to happen. And then here's one I thought was really curious, and it actually mentions an actress that was in a film we reviewed a few minutes ago. Uh, George Miller of Mad Max Fury Road, and actually all the Mad Max films, uh, the director of those films, is in the early talks of doing a spinoff of Mad Max Fury Road called Furiosa, about the Charlize Theron character. Okay. But it would be starring Anya Taylor-Joy. So... 
I guess she would be playing a younger version of Furioso or something. I'm not really sure. Huh. Um, but supposedly that was all in the early planning stages. And they're saying, well, they're working out ways to keep early planning stages of films moving forward because people can do that remote video conferencing and with technology. It's just when you actually come down to actually shooting the thing, that's when you kind of run into a problem. So, I mean, I, I think I'm alone in that I saw Mad Max Fury Road. I thought it was okay. But everybody yeah. just thinks this thing is like the best thing ever. And I, I mean, not that I didn't like it. And on the big screen, yes, it was pretty impressive. The effects and everything. But the story to me was pretty non-existent. And so I just, I mean, and, you know, a sequel could have all the big blockbuster special effects and car chases and things exploding. Sure. You know, the, the staging of all that's impressive, but I just, I don't know. I wonder if the story is going to strike me as being any more unique. than that. All right. And you're going to, you're going to put your email at the end of the show for where people to send their hate mail, right? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Uh, just for the record, I'm closer to you than I am probably the rest of the world. I, I thought it was visually really exciting and interesting. But, I mean, people putting it as one of the top films of the decade. No way, man. I have a hard time with that. So that's a little bit of a stretch for me. But that's, again, films are a subjective art form. So that's what they're here for. Absolutely. Last thing I'll just mention, Chris, is, you know, I think we're going to see ourselves talking a lot in the next several months about what does this mean for movie theaters in general? We know the film business, they will continue making movies. It is not going to be a matter of the movie business is going to shut down for any longer than it has to. There's enough creative people and ideas and production capabilities to keep making movies. The problem is what is this going to do to movie theaters? Because right now they're all shut down. And as films start to go more and more online for their premieres, is this something society is going to actually take a hold of and say, you know what, we like this better than paying 10 or $12 to go to the movie theater and maybe not always having the best experience when we're there? I don't know. I think, uh, and I think a lot of movie theater executives are kind of asking the same question right now. So it's going to be very interesting. Um, AMC, for example, I mean, they have 634 theaters across the nation, wow. all closed down, representing 8,000 screens, the biggest chain out there. Regal has 7,200 screens, over 548 theater locations, all shut down. So right away, you just see them. I mean, the impact of uh, you know what's going to happen for film distribution. As much as I want the theater business to continue because I love the movie theaters, it's one of my favorite places to go and my greatest places to escape, uh, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really, really tough, I think, to justify – them operating the same way they always have in the past after well, all this is done. My question is, is like the invisible man going to win best picture next year because it's going to be the only new film that's going to be, <laughs> and like, you know, True. you and I plan on seeing onward when it comes on Disney plus, because, you know, I guess it may be the only animated movie up for best animated picture because it's like, well, yeah. it was one of the few released. So, I think it's going to be really interesting, like you're saying, see how it affects theaters, see how it affects theater distribution, and then thinking all the way ahead to uh, the Oscars in early part of next year. Like, how are they? How are they going to do stuff? Well, here, here, I'm going to try to play some positives out of this. I do think for smaller independent films, this actually could be a good thing 
Yeah. I mean, I hate saying a good thing. Nothing about this is a good thing. Nothing about this whole situation we're living through is a good thing. But if I'm an independent film producer and I was struggling to get my films in the theaters to get people to see them, well, now that's no longer a factor. Everybody's at the level playing field. If everybody's starting to go online to get all their entertainment more than they were in the movie theater, if I'm an independent film producer, I feel like, well, at least the, the, my chances are a little more even that I'm going to be able to get some eyeballs on my film that I may not have been able to get before. To me, the biggest turning point in this whole thing is going to be really curious to see is if we get to a point two, three months down the road, theaters are still not opening for whatever reason, and you have any of the big tentpole big movies decide to go online. That, to me, could be the opening of the floodgates where things change. If Wonder Woman says at the last minute, you know what? We're, you know, we're just going to go ahead and go online. Or if Black Widow, which was delayed, says, you know what? We're going to keep to our release schedule. We're still going to release. We're just going to do it online. Any of these big movies do that, then I think the the real writing's on the wall, or at least we'll be telling us what's going to be happening with, with theaters going forward. So very, very curious, interesting times right now for the film business. It's agreed. Yeah. I mean, I hate saying it, but I think, you know, we as consumers ultimately are going to be better off because if the the theater business shuts down, then it just means that we all have quicker, easier access to every film when it comes out online. Sure. We enjoy a greater variety of things and greater accessibility, but we lose that theater experience, which is something I personally don't want to do, but. Yeah. The communal aspect of watching it together as opposed to, yeah. But convenience and flexibility and access to different films will definitely be in the consumer's favor. So, <sighs> strange, strange times, man. Agreed. Well, knowing that people are homebound as we're recording this, and I'm uh, sure they will still be in the next couple of weeks as they listen to it. Um, now's the time of the show where we like to give our recommendations, Chris. Recommendation of a film that. Obviously, in this situation, we're going to say a film you can find online because I don't know how else you'll get to see the film if it wasn't online. Each of us picks out a film that either we caught up with recently or just recall that uh, we haven't spoken about before that we do want to give a recommendation of. Chris, what do you want to recommend for us this episode? Okay, so I'm going to recommend um, not only just one. I'm going to recommend one uh, film, but I'm going to recommend something that you it comes from the batch of short films that came out at the 2020 South by Southwest festival. And you're saying, wait, I thought they didn't have that festival because of the whole coronavirus. You're right. They ended up canceling the festival, but what they've done when I say they South by Southwest has allowed MailChimp and oscilloscope labs to release all the short films online and you can go and watch them. So if you Googled like, uh, 2020 South by Southwest or, you know, SXSW shorts and then put like MailChimp oscilloscope, you could probably pull it up. Um, and there's all these shorts listed that they'll get their chance to maybe be nominated for an Oscar for short documentary or a short narrative film because they actually did get released kind of online. So that's kind of a cool thing. The one I'm going to recommend specifically um, is Broken Orchestra. And it is a documentary short. It's like 12 minutes long. It's by Trek director Charlie Tyrell. And it takes on the, the Philadelphia public school system was going through, you know, budget cutbacks and all this kind of stuff where one of the things that was happening is music in schools was kind of being put by the wayside because the orchestra instruments were getting broken and they didn't work anymore. And how can kids play broken instruments? 
Um, this documentary is one of the most unique uh, documentaries that I've seen in a while. Um, wow. It is, I will say, I don't want to say much more than that other than I really, really like it. I recommend it and you can see it online for free. Um, but uh, yeah, you can even go to YouTube, I think, and type in Broken Orchestra and it'll come up. Um, and it's like 12 minutes long. Charlie Tyrell is the director, but it is a, ta- I will say, it is a talking head documentary, but unlike any other talking head documentary you've ever seen. Um, <laughs> and it's a short, though, right? 12 minutes, yeah. Okay. All right. Great. I definitely will check that out. And yeah, I definitely think everybody needs to, to have an opportunity to try to see as many of those short films that are not getting festival playing time. You know, short films already have a tough time getting an audience and getting seen. Uh, festivals were their number one way of doing that for a large audience. And now those have been gone, going away for a while. So I think it's a uh, thank you for recommending that, Chris. That's awesome. Mine, unfortunately, is not quite as uh, helpful to the film industry today because I'm pulling up a film from back in 1980, I believe, if I'm remembering my years correctly. Okay. Um, Yeah, 1980. So personal plug, Chris, and I'm sorry to have to break this to you here on the show. Um, I'm also on another podcast. Uh, Uh, I'm sorry, Chris. I know you had been led to believe for so long that it was just – just Foot Candle films I was involved with online as a podcast. Right. There is another. Oh. I am a co-host, guest host, whatever you may call it, on the Country-ish with John Reap uh, podcast. Very, very different from our show. Okay. Uh, I don't really country films or no? Well, Country-ish films, I think, is the key there. John Reap, a uh, nationally known comedian. Uh, we do. We produce a, a show here on the Mesh Network that he's a part of. Um, that he hosts. I sit in uh, most of the time as one of his guests. And even though I do nothing funny, I have no humor to add to the mix. Uh, I'm pretty much there as a straight guy. The one thing that they do find the use for me for <laughs> on the show is that whenever they want to do a movie review, uh, they like to talk about films that are quote country ish, meaning not perfect Southern culture country, but more, maybe bordering on or maybe Hollywood's take of country, country uh, culture. Okay. And this film I'm about to recommend uh, perfectly fits that idea. It is 1980s urban cowboy. Now I've never we brought up, have you never seen it? I've never seen it. Okay. So we brought it up as an idea to, to talk about. It was more done in, in jest. It was more of a, Oh Yeah. Let's watch this because this will be kind of a country-ish film. This is uh, John Travolta, definitely not someone you associate with country, playing a cowboy, uh, basically. And we thought it would just be a hoot to watch. Well, we watched it, and you know what? It's actually not that bad. Uh, It's actually pretty interesting as a cultural touchpoint to watch for several reasons. A, this was a film that was released – right after John Travolta had hit it so big with Saturday Night Night Fever and with Grease. So he was riding high at the time. He did Urban Cowboy. Urban Cowboy, not as big a hit as those other ones. More interesting to me, though, is the fact that he plays a character in this film, um, Bud. Yes, that that is his name, Bud. Bud. And Bud's a bad person. I mean, he's he's kind of a jerk. He's, He's kind of a bad person in general. I mean, there's he... He hits his girlfriend. He is obsessive. He's uh, uh, very jealous, uh, quick to jealous and rage. 
he's not a great character. I mean, and, and to see John Travolta play this this kind of against type person and to actually do an okay job doing it, I thought was kind of interesting to watch. Um, you also have Scott Glenn in this film uh, playing Wes Hightower. And yes, that is his name, Wes Hightower. He is a rival of the John Travolta's bud. And, and, and uh, yeah, what do these people do as a... <laughs> So that's the thing. I went into the movie thinking, seeming that I remembered it being about dancing at a country music joint. It's not. There's one scene of dancing, but it's not. It is uh, mechanical bull riding. Nice. That is the whole thing. And I'll tell you, though, they actually film it and produce it pretty well, where actually you're kind of engrossed in the bull riding <laughs> mechanics going on in the you film. You get seasick from watching people get tossed around. <laughs> Now, they, they do a pretty good job. I have to credit the director on this. The director is James Bridges, who you probably don't recognize the name, but he is known for films like The China Syndrome. Okay. Uh, that was uh, with uh, Michael Douglas and, and Jane Fonda, I believe. Okay. He also did The Paper Chase, if you remember that film uh, from, from many years ago. He also did um, oh Bright Lights, Big City with Michael J. Fox as well, I believe. So he's had kind of an interesting mix. He's made some some classic films, especially China Syndrome and The Paper Chase. Um, this was probably his last big hit. I think he directed, but um, I actually think it's pretty. It's a lot grittier and darker than I remembered it being from when I saw it when I was younger. Uh, it is rated PG. Oh, uh, it's definitely not a PG movie nowadays standards. This was back in 1980 when they did not have PG 13 and the PG spectrum was much wider. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, unfortunately Deborah Winger plays Bud's girlfriend and, uh, it's a tough role for her. She is, uh, um, uh, she's a lot of violence, domestic violence towards her. Uh, it's a rough, it's a rough role. It's a rough viewing as well. So it's a lot darker, stronger, um, grittier film than I recall. And it's so, PG. That's crazy. It's PG. Yeah, I know. So, uh, but I think it's worth watching. Um, there are some moments that are very much 1979, 1980, but the music, the soundtrack, it's very much, uh, pop country at the time, which I think back then that was really on the rise and Murray, Kenny Rogers, uh, you know, the devil went down to Georgia by the Charlie Daniels band all play big parts in the film. So I had a good time with it. I actually thought it was actually pretty good, Uh, but definitely a, a relic of the time and an interesting choice for John Travolta at that period is in his career. So, yeah. So, your recommendation, uh, short films. What was the name specifically of the short film you recommended? Broken Orchestra. Broken Orchestra. And then mine is 1980s Urban Cowboy. It's something you may want to check out if you get a shot. We're giving out those recommendations for your stay-at-home time here in the next coming weeks. So with that, Chris, I think we're done for today's episode. Uh, we had our reviews of Emma and Swallow. We talked a little bit about a couple of trailers we found interesting for films coming up soon, as well as uh, talked about the overall uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, and the impact it's had on the film community and the theater business, and then our recommendations for the episode as well. So, Chris, I'm sure people may have opinions, ideas, thoughts, questions. How do they get a hold of us if they want to share those with us? So you're wanting to yell at me because Mad Max Fury Road is the greatest film, not only of the decade, but of all time. 
You can send your defense to info at the mesh.tv and just put Foot Candle Films in the subject line. You can also follow us on Twitter at Foot Candle Film. Al and I are both on Letterboxd, uh, where we're going to possibly track what we're seeing during our time in quarantine. And that's Letterboxd without the last E. So L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D is uh, some another way you can keep up with us. And also we'd be remiss with uh, Foot Candle Film Festival will be happening September 23rd through the 27th. So that's something else we're involved in and you might want to check out if you're in Western North Carolina during that time. All right. And that is going to wrap it up for today. So thanks everybody for listening again. Feel free to check out some other podcasts on the Mesh Network. We'd always love to hear some of your uh, uh, thoughts on this show as well as other shows we have on the network, all available for free up at themesh.tv. That's where our home is. That's where we recommend you check out this show as well as past episodes. And we'll look forward to seeing you or talking to you. Hopefully the next time we get together may still be in a remote location, but we'll still keep recording the show and putting it out there for you. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll talk to you next time. See you in the ticket line when theaters reopen. Watch films in the company of like-minded people in the dark. Watch films in the underground. We won't let anyone know where you are. The films that don't make it to Carmike at the mall. Or ones that were famous when Grandpa would watch films out of the reverence of the heritage of an art. Watch films through the courtesy of Footcats. No film society. Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.